Before we get to this week's episode, we want to encourage you to check out the NPR One app. We want to give you all kinds of ideas for other things you could be doing. NPR One, it's a great way to find tons of new shows and news from your local public radio station. So forget uh, all the work that it took us to prepare for today's episode and go listen to something else on uh, NPR One. You can find it on your app store, NPR O-N-E. I hold in my hands right now um, a declassified document from World War II. It's called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. And this manual was created by the OSS, which was a precursor to the CIA. It says at the beginning, quote, the contents of this manual should be carefully controlled and should not be allowed to come into unauthorized hands. This is a serious manual about how to prank the Nazis. Charles Pink is president of the OSS Society. So, Charles, can you just basically explain what this thing is? Well, um, it's a, an instruction manual for saboteurs. And you have to remember that in World War II, you know, when the Nazis occupied all these countries in Europe, it's not that they, they brought lots of Germans with them to run everything, you know, all the stuff that, you know, businesses and factories, you know, they had to rely on the, the native populations whose countries they'd occupied, and a lot of them, you know, for obvious reasons, didn't look very favorably upon them. So it actually gave the Allies uh, a great opportunity to cause problems for them by encouraging people to screw things up. So uh, what are a few of the ways that the OSS was instructing people to sabotage things? Well, they, they actually have different ways uh, for different types of organizations. And I'll be honest with you, one of my favorite parts of this manual is uh, its instructions on how to uh, disrupt organizations. And when I read some of these uh, suggestions to you, it, it uh, you know, frankly reminds me of some of the places uh, you know, that I've worked. So, for instance, in uh, Section 11, general interference with uh, organizations and production. It says, uh, make speeches, talk as frequently as possible and at great length, illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experience, bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. One of the other suggestions it makes is for managers to hold conferences when there's more critical work to be done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically what you're saying is that um, the same things that uh, I think happen in most offices everywhere mm -hmm. were, in, in this document, outlined as techniques to help bring down the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Correct. Absolutely. It yep. almost makes you wonder if some of these ineffective people that we work with aren't actually highly skilled agents. <laughs> yeah, well, I can assure you the OSS isn't, isn't doing this in the United States anymore. One of my favorite suggestions on how to, how to screw up organizations is cry and sob hysterically at every occasion, especially when confronted by government clerks. It also says, um, act stupid. That's right. a, that, I mean, right. that's a quote. Yes, it is. <laughs> what do you think yeah. you were supposed to do? Uh, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, someone asks you a question, pretend you don't know the answer, you know, give them the wrong answer. Do you uh, know, Charles, if any yeah. of these techniques were ever applied in the field? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think these, these uh, were put to good use, uh, and, and certainly I think probably did a lot of damage to the German, the German war machine, you know, because a lot of it was also mechanical in nature for people who worked in factories, right? Screw up machines and break machines and, you know, um, you know what they used to do, for instance, with trains that would be carrying German personnel, they would drain out, secretly drain out um, the grease and replace it with abrasive grease, which would break them. It tells you how to clog a toilet, cause a flood. 
instructions on how to, you know, cause fires by, you know, messing with light bulbs and electrical switches. A lot of very technical stuff, too, that anyone could do. Well, wait, what do you do to a toilet? Hold on one second here. I'll look up the instruction. It says here, okay, forget to provide paper in toilets. Put tightly rolled paper, hair, and other obstructions in the water closet. Wait, am I interpreting the first part of that correctly, yep. that one of the techniques to bring down the Nazis was to yep. just not leave toilet paper next to the toilet? To yeah, yeah. Well, here's another interesting thing. There was The OSS had a what it called a morale operations branch, what we would refer to today as psychological operations. One of the things they would do would be to create anti-Nazi leaflets that they would disseminate into the occupied countries. And we have one that was actually printed on toilet paper because, you know, it was in very short supply, right, during the war. Oh. So it would be a thing that somebody would hopefully read before they use. I mean, and obviously the what you're doing with it is kind of uh, instructive too, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. A, this, this message will self-destruct. Sort of. There's some great advice um, for, you know, if the Nazis were showing propaganda films. Um, right. And you were, you know, you had to watch them. A, a way to fight that. Can you talk about that? Right. It says that an audience member can ruin a propaganda film by bringing a bag of moths into a theater. Take the bag to the movies with you and leave it on the floor of an empty section of the theater. The moths will fly out and climb on into the projector beam, so that the film will be obscured by fluttering shadows. Now, I don't know who thought that up, but that's pretty smart. Yeah, and I mean. I mean where would you get those moths? Right, where would you get the moths? That's what I was thinking. Where do you get moths? Well, I guess maybe you just turn a light on. Train conductors, it, it suggests train conductors can issue two tickets for the same seat in a train so that an interesting argument will result. And then it says, in trains bound for enemy destinations, attendants should make life as uncomfortable as possible for passengers. See that the food is especially bad. Take up tickets after midnight and exchange the colored lenses on red and green lights. Make a stop light into yeah. it. Yeah, make it say go when it should stop i think that there's there's something so comforting about this in a way because you yeah. know these, these are inconveniences that we encounter every day right and if you think rather than becoming frustrated with what's happening you know when someone's doing something too slowly or something but thinking maybe this person is helping fight the nazis right. i think it makes it easier to bear well, you have to imagine people that did this took certain pleasure in it, you know? Yeah. Imagine you're in, you know, German-occupied France, right? You hate the Nazis, you hate what they're doing. You know, this is a way for you to fight back, right? I've certainly had the privilege of knowing a lot of folks who served in the OSS and uh, who told me some of the more, you know, crazy things they did, whether, you know, blowing up railroad lines or sabotaging tanks or, you know, even, frankly, pissing in gas tanks at German tanks. Is that yeah, really, that's, there's a guy that did that? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, basically they, they snuck into some German base and there were a bunch of German tanks there and one of the ways to ruin an engine is to piss in the gas tank. So that's what they did. That must have felt so Good. wonderful. Right. Satisfying, right? Yeah, I know. Well, Charles, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Last week in Britain, they moved their clocks forward an hour. And the UK is, of course, home to the most famous clock in the world, Big Ben. Everybody calls it Big Ben. Um, some people will correct you and say, no, Big Ben is the name of the bell. The clock is actually called the Great Clock. We typically don't worry about those people or listen to them. Paul Robeson is one of the clockmakers of Parliament. 
So, Paul, let's start here. Um, during the rest of the year, you look after all these clocks, including Big Ben. Well, what does that mean exactly? Um, well, we, we need to wind them up still. I mean, Big, Big Ben is still wound up. The clock is weight-driven. So the mechanism is behind where you see the dial, and the weights gradually work their way to the ground. So um, three times a week, we need to climb up the stairs um, and wind the weights back up again. Um, and we also maintain it, so if there's any problems, um, we, we, we're able to mend it, maintain it, we check it for accuracy, um, and, and just take care of it, really. <laughs> uh, if, it's not, if it's not accurate, what do you do? Um, when the clock was um, originally designed, it, it was part of the specification was that it was always to be accurate within a second. So it's the first strike of the hour bell, is the exact o'clock. Um, today we're allowed a leeway of two seconds, so it has to be within two seconds. Um, if it's out at all, with a conventional clock, you have the pendulum which is swinging side to side, um, but because Big Ben has got this 14-foot pendulum and it's swinging every two seconds, if you tried to grab that and make an adjustment, it would be minutes out before you'd manage to make the adjustment. Right. So what we have is up near the top of the pendulum rod, so it's swinging side to side, but up near the top of it is a tray with various weights on it, and some of those weights are, are, are old pennies, and by adding a penny, you're effectively moving the centre of gravity up. So if we add a penny, we speed the clock up by two-fifths of a second a day, if we take a penny off, we slow it down by two-fifths of a second a day. So um, that's how we adjust the timekeeping. Wow. <laughs> Wait, so if, and if you were ever short of change, could you if just... Ever short of change, working where we are, we're always short of change, I tell you. What does it sound like in there? Um, well, it's quite a large room, so um, ordinarily there's just this ticking. So every two seconds, there's a very distinctive tick. Of the, of the pendulum swinging side to side, then every 15 minutes it gets quite noisy because the chime mechanism is triggered. But ordinarily it's quite sort of, um, it's, it's odd really with this pendulum just ticking, you know, it, it, it almost sends you to sleep if you're not careful. Do you, Paul, are you always hearing in your in your head the sound of that ticking clock? The ticking. Well, you do. It's, it's, it's odd because when we, the only time we get to stop the clock um, for any maintenance or anything like that. But really, the only time we get to stop it is a time change weekend. Um, and when you're in that room and it's not ticking, it, it's really eerie. It's really... You're so used to hearing this, this very loud tick every two seconds that when you're in there, when it's not ticking, it, it, it's very strange and, and, and an eerie feeling, yeah. Do you, right now, when you're, you're at home, you're not there in the tower, do you hear that ticking right now? Um, no, I don't actually. No, no. I've, I've, I'm surrounded by clocks at home. I've, I've been a clockmaker all my life, so I'm, I'm quite passionate about it. So I do have a small collection of clocks at home. So there's, there's ticking everywhere. <laughs> Are they all in sync? Your clocks at home? No, they're, they're not. I mean, they're, they're antiques, and um, it's one of the things that does annoy my wife. She, she only lets me have one running pearl room because she says the ticking, they sound like they're c competing with each other. Do you, uh, do you have anything at home that competes with uh, the great clock, Big uh, Ben? No, nothing competes with the great clock. Um, I, I'm 57 now, and I left school at 16 and went straight into an apprenticeship. 
um, as a trainee clockmaker and watchmaker. And, you know, people say to me, if, if, if you'd have been told back then that one day you'll be looking after Big Ben, probably the most famous clock in the world, you know, back then I just wouldn't have believed it. It's, um, as far as a clockmaker goes, it's kind of the pinnacle um, to, to, to be looking after Big Ben. I'm very, I'm very privileged to be doing it. So you you just changed the the clock. What um what does that entail? Um, we, we you have to remember that between three of us, we're responsible for all the clocks in the Houses of Parliament. So it's about two thousand clocks we look after. So for us, we're all day Saturday doing the clocks in the palace, and all day Sunday doing the outbuildings. Um, but Big Ben is actually done um, through the night. So as I said to you earlier, it's the the only time we're allowed to stop the clock. When you when you stop Big Ben, the most famous clock in the world. Yeah. Does part of you worry? What if it doesn't <laughs> start again? Uh, no, no. We, we 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 know the clock inside out, and um, uh, we we're more than confident it will start again. It's, uh, that's that's not a problem. I mean, there there are occasions. Um, I mean, probably New Year's Eve. For us, is the most um, traumatic because there's so many people looking up at the clock. If anything happened and it didn't chime 12 o'clock um, when you see the new year in, then that would be embarrassing. So, Paul, working with clocks for as long as you have, do you have an innate sense of time? Like, if I asked you right now what time it was without looking at a no, clock? No, to be honest, a clockmaker is not really obsessed with time. I would say we're engineers, really. I don't think our obsession is with timekeeping. It's more with mechanics. Yeah. Well, this has been... This is great. Thank you so much for telling us about Big Ben. Good, good. I'm pleased to share it with you. Hey, now's the part of our show where we tell you about the people who sponsor us with money. And this week, that means Stamps.com. Mailing and shipping can seem like a no-win situation. A zero-sum game. Trips to the post office are time-consuming. And leasing a postage meter is expensive. There's a better way. It's stamps.com, a website on the internet. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer. You can sign up for stamps.com for a special offer. It's a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter everything. Support also comes from Bleecker Street, presenting the new thriller Eye in the Sky, starring Academy Award winner Helen Mirren, Aaron Paul, and Alan Rickman. When a drone mission triggers an international incident, the highest levels of the U.S. and British governments are forced to confront the moral and... You know what? Uh, We need to change the music here. When a drone mission triggers an international incident, the highest levels of the U.S. and British government are forced to confront... I really don't have the right voice for this. Do you want me to do it? Yep. When a drone mission triggers an international incident, the highest levels of the U.S. and British government are forced to confront the moral and political implications of modern warfare. I am the sky. Welcome to the new front line. It's directed by Gavin Hood, now playing in select theaters everywhere April 1st. Well, that does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? Well, I learned that there was this, uh, this classified document during World War II, which basically was... Um, teaching occupied people how to sabotage the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was mostly just 
it was just kind of how to be a jerk, right? Yeah. So it sort of makes you imagine that, like, before January 1944, when this document was was created, that before that, nobody, nobody knew how to be a jerk, except oh. the Nazis. But, like, everyone else, like, they had no idea how to be cruel to each other or uh, annoying or slow things down. Yeah. You think that, um, like, government services were just really quite efficient? Yeah. Like, getting your license renewed? Like, it was a, one of the pleasures of life. Yeah. Everyone always said thank you. Yeah. Everyone o- always offered the seat. And then the OSS thought, you know what? I have this idea. Human beings could be terrible. And everyone's like, wait, this sounds crazy. Yeah. And and the world we have today could have been very different. I wonder, too, like, when you're at the movie theater and there's some guy talking throughout the movie behind you if he's not a plant and if really the key is just to turn around and be like hey buddy war's over clearly this worked yeah the nazis lost we chose a world in which everyone is a little bit annoying i mean it's a trade-off right yeah the one side no nazis i mean think about it next time you're in a meeting that seems completely unnecessary think the alternative is uh, global Nazi empire. That yeah. that makes that meeting feel okay. What do you want? A better meeting or more Hitler? How to Do Everything is produced by Nadia Wilson with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Isabel Robertson. She's our real intern. She's actually here and did some interning. Yeah. So it's almost... It's unsettling yeah, I don't like to have it. an intern doing things. I mean, it's great. Isabel did great work, though. Our artist in residence is Justin Witte. You can get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Hey, now that this podcast is over, you might find yourself feeling uh, alone. The silence, almost like uh, walls uh, crushing you in the uh, pit of loneliness. Don't despair, because NPR's Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is out there. That's your guide to what's good in pop culture. Every week, Jesse interviews people like Elvis Costello, Zach Galifianakis, and Spike Lee about their creative work and their lives. You can find your new favorite TV shows, books, movies, and music, and gain insights into the things you already love. Find Bullseye now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app.